0: Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter four. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common.
1: Christians are insincere and concerned only with converting others. That's the critique. Here's what we just had read out of Acts 4. And as they, the they is Peter and John, disciples of Jesus, this is after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and as Peter and John were speaking to the people in Jerusalem, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, Greatly annoyed because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody. But many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men who believed came to about 5,000. So Peter and John are proclaiming resurrection, resurrection life in Jesus, The leaders of the people are greatly annoyed, and they arrest Peter and John, but thousands believe and join this new Christian movement. Here's what you see in this passage that I think you always see. It's the message of Jesus as Christ, crucified and risen Lord and Savior, is always going to cause divergent reactions. Some who will react against, and some who will respond for. But I think the problem today is that most people's reaction against seems to be more a reaction against Christians than against Christ and the message of Christ. In the 1992 film, Glengarry Glen Ross, Alec Baldwin plays a blowhard, successful salesman who comes storming into a sad sack office of terrible salesmen and starts berating them. And he famously says, A, B, C, always be closing. If you're a salesman, you need to always be closing. Closing the deal, closing the sale, always be closing. A number of years ago when we first moved to Richmond we started getting to know people in the Richmond area and we started getting to know people on the basis of first people we already knew and then their friends, you know how that works when you move to a new area and we got to know, or got to know of this one family who had been there years before us and they had also gone to the same university as us and just a couple years ahead. So they were already on the in crowd, they were older, they were cooler. We wanted to get to know them. Well, one day the husband called me up. He said, hey, do you want to get coffee or lunch sometime? I said, sure. So we set it up. I don't know. It was like a Thursday. We were going to go get coffee late morning. We met at the Starbucks near both of us, and we sat down, and I was excited to get to know him a little bit. He started asking me questions about my family, how how my wife and I met, about the university, my studies in seminary, and then he asked, hey, do you have a financial advisor? He then proceeded to tell me over the next 25 minutes what he did and how he could help me. He gave me his paperwork. I told him I already had a financial advisor. I realized it was a setup. It was like somebody trying to get you to try sushi by shoving it in a Twinkie the first time. So, The reality is that if he had told me, hey, I'm a financial advisor, I'd love to talk to you about it, I would have said sure. But I, of course, was under the guise that he wanted to be a friend, get to know me. He never called again. This is how many people feel about Christians. The outsider's critique of Christians, and an outsider, based on the book that we're reading, is an atheist or agnostic and somebody who is unaffiliated or is a believer in another faith, basically somebody who is outside of Christianity. Outsider's critique of Christians goes like this, Christians don't care about us, they just want to get us saved. It feels like Christians are always trying to close the deal. And there's also a perceptions or a self-awareness gap amongst Christians David Kinnaman in UnChristian wrote this, 64% of Christians said they believed that outsiders would perceive their efforts as genuine, but only one-third of young outsiders believe that Christians genuinely care about them. That's a significant self-awareness gap. Christians have a perception problem and also an authenticity problem And I think it's actually built out of a message problem. There are some things I don't think are the problem. And I'm going to rephrase it a little bit here. Let me tell you about something I've enjoyed recently and something that I've loved for quite a while. First, something I've enjoyed recently. Just this past week, I went with a friend to see the movie Love and Mercy, which is the biopic of Brian Wilson the musical, you know, just giant behind the Beach Boys. Brian Wilson is the one who did all of their music, basically, the brother who who gave all the sounds to them. And the biopic tells the story of the recording of Pet Sounds, which is the most critically acclaimed album that they ever put out. Rolling Stone put it as the number two album of all time. And it shows the making of that, but it also juxtaposes Brian Wilson's descent into mental illness. And so it's actually a hard film to watch because you see him descending into mental illness and it flashes between the 60s and the 80s. And by the 1980s, he was under the control of an abusive psychiatrist, and you, you watch that whole episode play out. It's a really tough film to watch, but in many ways it's also a wonderful film because it traces his musical brilliance at times. I remember one scene where uh, he gathers all these musicians, and he starts handing them music because they're gonna record one of the songs for, uh, for Pet Sounds, and this lady has a clarinet, I think it is, and she holds the music up, and, and she says, Brian, there's something wrong with my music here. Uh, my bass line is written in A, but the guy behind me, his is written in D. Did you mean for them to both be in A or both be in D? He said, no, 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 no. Just trust me. Go with the two different bass lines. It will work. Nobody had ever done this before. These were classically trained musicians who had no idea what he was doing, it's absolute brilliance, and you see it unfold in the recording of the music, and the songs play out, songs that you would recognize, and it's, it's a beautiful piece of musical brilliance, and the cinematography is good, where it sets in the 60s and then in the 80s. So, if you like Brian Wilson or the Beach Boys or are interested in this story or love music, it's a great film to go see. That's recent. Something I've always loved or loved for a long time is the Vienna Inn. If you are a person who has been around Vienna and have not gone to the Vienna Inn, I will warn you, it is not a clean restaurant, but it is a wonderful place. It's a wonderful place because you can go there and see all sorts of people. On a Friday night you will see a group of middle schoolers hanging out, you'll see people who have just come off of the softball field, you'll see an older couple having dinner together, a whole family with little kids there, you'll see people sitting at the bar who work during the day and are hanging out together with their friends in the evening, a group of college kids back from college, everyone is there. The food is simple and greasy as it should be. And they have these placemats that you can color on and tape it to the wall, and you're part of the decorations. If you haven't been, you need to go. If you don't like greasy things, try it once. At least you'll have experienced it. It's wonderful. What did I just do? I just evangelized you guys. I just evangelized you about a movie. In a restaurant. So, my take is this the problem is not being evangelists. Every one of us is an evangelist for something, for cities that we love, vacation spots, restaurants, music, albums we've listened to. We are evangelists all the time for brands, for cars, for people. C.S. Lewis talks about this. In his reflections on the Psalms, he talks about how all of us love and value things, and when we do, we want to praise them and share it with others. This is what he writes. The world rings with praise. Readers praising their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors. Just as people spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. I would suggest along C.S. Lewis lines that we're all made to praise things. We're all made to share the things we love, the things we value, the things that impact us the most. We all evangelize. So I'm going to suggest that's not actually the problem. So what is the problem? Some people, many people, will reject Christianity because they don't agree or believe that Jesus is the Savior and God. They should not reject Christianity because of us but that's very often what happens. And I'm going to suggest that one of the problems is that our gospel message is too narrow, and therefore our gospel mission is often too narrow as well. If our gospel message is simply, you need to be saved from your sins, and that's it, then the way I will go about gospel ministry is trying to close the deal, trying to get you saved. But when we think about how the gospel is drawn to its full conclusions, its full impact, everything that Jesus came to do, it changes how we approach our message and our mission. This is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to reveal God. You see Jesus, you meet the living God. And he has come to reconcile all people to his Father, and to restore all things under the lordship of God. If that's our gospel message, it will have continual impact in our life, implication for our relationships, and affect our approach to everyone and everything. We won't be just trying to close the deal. We want to see God through Jesus everywhere. And there's lots of ways that that happens. So one problem, as I mentioned, is our too narrow gospel. And what we see in Jesus is a gospel message that expands out. What was Jesus' first message? If you look through the gospel of Mark, the first thing he says is, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is here. What's the kingdom of heaven that he keeps talking about? Well, I think he gives us a good insight into it in his very first sermon, which according to Luke, is when he goes to Nazareth and he unscrolls Isaiah 61 and he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus reading Isaiah 61, a prophecy of what would happen when God came to restore all things. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus sits down and says, today, today this is being fulfilled in your presence. Jesus is saying, I have come to restore all things as they are meant to be. What's he talking about? What needed to be restored? Well, this is the original Christian message which goes back to the Garden of Eden and the fall. Here's what we believe in in Christianity. God made Adam and Eve, man and woman, to be in relationship with him, with each other, and with the creation around them in complete peace, wholeness, and harmony. But in sin, they rebelled against God, choosing to say, I will live on my own apart from you. That's called the fall. Sin enters humanity. And what you find is man is at enmity with God, trying to hide from God, at enmity with others, they each hide from each other and blame the other. They're at enmity with the creation itself. Labor is going to be hard. Work is not going to be joyful. The serpent will try to bite you. The creation is broken. And even internal self-breakdown, a lack of identity, purpose, psychological understanding. Everything breaks down, spiritual, social, Physical, psychological breakdown. And what we live in this world today is one post the fall, where we see that breakdown physically with sickness, socially with war and divorce and brokenness in relationships, psychologically with mental illness and with need for approval or constantly trying to exert our power and spiritual brokenness because all of us are at odds with God on our own. Everyone and everything needs to be reconciled and restored. And that's what Jesus went about doing. He went about restoring people, even if temporarily, right? He physically restores people, a paralyzed man, a leper, a blind man, who at least temporarily can see, can walk, have clean skin, He does spiritual restoration of legion as he casts out the demons or the woman at the well as she is moved from a pagan prostitute into a minister in her community. He does social restoration as he takes a bleeding woman who is an outcast and restores her to community. Or he takes Zacchaeus, who nobody wants to be near, and restores him to a place in his village. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's not just saying, believe me and I'll forgive your sins. He's undoing the effects of the fall because he came to undo the effects of the fall and restore all things. And that gives us a template for the life that we're called to live. We get it as well in a passage that doesn't seem to fit, but I had us read in Jeremiah 29. If you've been here for a while, you've heard us read this before because it sets the tone for a lot of what we think about and do in our community Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, gives us a picture of maybe how you restore things in your community. Here's, I'm just going to read through it again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Israel is in exile in a godless pagan city of Babylon. Babylon. He tells the people there, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, if you've been here before, you've heard us say this, that word welfare is the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word shalom, which means Wholeness. Shalom means physical, psychological, social, and spiritual wholeness and flourishing. Life as it was meant to be before the fall, life as it will one day be when God comes finally to restore all things. Shalom. How are you supposed to create shalom? Well, in verse 5 and 6, we get very simple ways. Build houses, plant vineyards, have families, live. He's calling Israel to live in their city, in their community, and simply establish order by their presence. Be a part of your community. That creates human flourishing. When your household is there and stable, it creates stability for others around you. When you're working, playing, laughing, enjoying life in this community, you're creating greater human flourishing all around you. So do that. But he goes a step further in verse 7 when he says, pray for and work towards the welfare, the shalom of your city. And I think what he's getting at there is picture, picture in your mind's eye God's purposes for your street, your school, your office, your town. What will this place look like when God comes to restore all things? And how does God want you to play a part in getting it there? And so in some ways, we should be the sort of people who celebrate where we see human flourishing. Christians should be celebrating the good that's around us more than we do. When we see uh, employment for people who need work or a community where people are getting connected in or kids thriving and enjoying themselves, we should be celebrating that. We should be celebrating new businesses because of the creativity or the or or the work that they provide others. Good schools, because that is a place where people can grow in knowledge. Stable government, rule of law. These are things we should be celebrating. Art, literature, film, music. These are ways that God uses average people to, to bring beauty to this world. These are things we should be celebrating because it's a part of human flourishing. It's a part of shalom. But we should also be stepping into places of brokenness. We should be known as the sort of people who go and help people who have housing needs. That if there are kids who are hungry because they go home on the weekends and don't have food, and there are many in our community who have that, and around D.C., there are scores and scores of kids who go home on the weekend and do not have food. That should be a concern of ours. Those who are aging and alone and don't have family near them. So those places where relational breakdown and need and physical and social and psychological breakdown happen, we should be stepping in. Those who have been abused physically, sexually, emotionally, need healing, we should be stepping in there. High school students who are incredibly stressed and some are suicidal, we should be stepping in there. Racial inequality that creates systematic poverty, we should be stepping in there because that is not God's purpose of human flourishing. Where are you being called? Who are the people in front of you? And where are we as a church called? One of the greatest critiques of Christians is we don't care about people. That's a horrible critique. (laughs) When the church first started, it was known as the only group of people that stayed behind to care for those dying and suffering in the plagues. Everyone else fled, the Christians stayed. These are the places that we should be stepping into as well. Because our heart should be moved by love. You know, if the gospel, the true gospel, takes seat in us, it should transform the way we approach relationships. The church itself should be a place of reconciliation and wholeness relationally. And we, as Christians, should be the sort who step out to deeper relationships with everyone, Christians or outsiders. It doesn't matter. In Acts 4, 32 to 35, we see the effects of gospel transformation on the lives of the people, As a result of this good news of Jesus Christ, these people committed themselves sacrificially to love and care for one another so that there was not a needy person among them. The community around them recognized this. They proclaimed the gospel and they lived it out in relationship with one another. And this should be true if we really grasp the gospel, which is Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he took care of our sin And restored us to the Father by grace, it should break down our pride, which is the primary thing that gets in the way of our relationships. When when we realize every one of us is sinful and needy, there's no more ground for self righteousness or pride. I realize I don't need to be right or first or defend myself or prove myself. It's by grace we've been saved. That is a great equalizer. And because it's by grace we've been saved, it it assures us of God's love for us. So we don't need to be insecure, seeking approval, trying to wield power. Since we are fully loved, we can finally love without expecting or needing anything in return. Jesus said the greatest commandment, summing up the commandments, was love God and love your neighbor, right? I would say you can't love God But not your neighbor. In other words, if you're really excited about God, you get excited about God, but not people, I'm not sure that the God you're talking about is Jesus Christ. Deeper love for Jesus, deeper faith and trust in Jesus will always push us out relationally into deeper love compassion and commitment for all people they go together and that love should drive us to want all people to know Jesus but one more thing about a problem with our gospel message is i think that we've we've boiled down very often too much to the point in time conversion and here's what i think often happens is we miss The idea that we have to actually grow in Christ, that Jesus calls people to come and follow him, and that it's a process of growing into that faith in Jesus Christ, that for some people there is a clear point in time, but for others you grow into this process of knowing God more and more. And actually, ultimately, that's the way we should all be looking at it. Spiritual formation is the word we should be talking about, or the phrase meaning our perspectives and attitude and actions should look more and more like Christ, which is basically more and more like it's going to be in heaven. Spiritual formation is a process which then, if we think about it that way, actually changes the way we look at others. So here's a little imagery that's a funny little imagery that's been in my head for about a decade now. Christianity does say this. At some point, you cross from death to life when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. At some point, you accept the cross, that you're a sinner and Jesus died for you. But here's what I've come to realize. While I am on that side of I've put my faith in Christ, am I the first, second, or third guy on the right? I don't know. Here's what I know. Every person I come in contact with, I see as people that are on this journey with me towards Christ. And so every one of them, I'm pushing or pulling And then, you know what I've found is I've gotten into deeper relationships with people, the people I thought I was pulling were actually pulling me at times. Because there's areas where I'm stronger in my faith, more Christ-like, and there's quite a few areas where they are. And I'm learning from them. So rather than me trying to convert people, I'm saying, look, we're all going towards Jesus. That's just, that's where I'm going. So you want to come? Help me get there? Let's Let's go. It's a lifelong process of journeying with people towards eternity. Ultimately, everyone does need to come to a decision on Jesus Christ. But I also don't know when they do or will. I can't know somebody's heart. I barely know my own. Think about Peter. When was he saved? Peter, come and follow me. He drops his nets and follows Jesus. He steps out of the boat later on and starts walking on water, then doubts and sinks. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In the very next sentence, Jesus is saying, you are following Satan, Peter. Peter says, I will never deny you, and then denies him blatantly. And then weeks later, he's standing in front of the people in Jerusalem saying, Jesus, Jesus, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. If this is true, as Acts 4.12 tells us, that there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. If this is true, and I actually believe it is, then it is the most important thing to be evangelistic about. More important than a good movie or your favorite restaurant. But I think as Christians, we need to stop inviting people to church and start inviting them into our life. Probably need to move from trying to close the deal And instead, think about journeying towards Christ and eternity together. I actually think many people, more than we realize, are open to Jesus. I know that many of you in here don't actually believe fully, but you're open. I just think that most people that we've come across have never actually seen the gospel. So show them. Let's pray. Jesus, it's unfortunate that we get in the way of what you have done for us and for this world, reconciling us to the God who made us and seeking to restore all things under your Lordship. But I pray that you would break down our hearts and pride, our lack of love and open us to that grace that will enable us to walk into other people's lives with love and compassion and mercy and authenticity, to care as you care, to love as you loved, to live the life of Christ in the life you have given us this day. Amen.
0: That bound this love to me.